Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Children's and Family Literature. I'm host Susan Robb, and today we're talking with Deborah Hopkinson, who is the author of more than 40 books um, for children. Her newest books published. Welcome to New Books in Children's and Family Literature. I'm host Susan Robb, and today we're talking with Deborah Hopkinson, who is the author of more than 40 books um, for children. Her newest books published by Hyperion is called The Steamboat School, uh, which is based on a true story. And uh, the book is uh, set in 1847 and in is based on the life of Reverend John Barry Meacham. And uh, Deborah, first wanted to thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, it it was interesting on this. I mean, there are a number of different uh, questions I have for you about um, how you decided to go the direction you did with this story. But basically, this is a fictionalized uh, picture book, but it's based on a real story about... uh, a school that Meacham started. So tell me uh, where you first heard about this. Well, actually, um, this book had a very interesting um, beginning. Um, It actually, the idea originated um, with, um, with Ron Husband, who at the time and his colleagues, and at the time he was working for Disney as an animator. He was one of the first African American animators at Disney. And um, for some reason, a colleague of his had heard about John Barry Meacham and this, um, who was an entrepreneur and um, um, an enslaved person who had um, earned uh, his own freedom through carpentry, uh, born in Virginia, and then had gone to St. Louis and begun a school um, and become a minister there. 
Um, and so um, I was actually um, asked to take on the project um, to help write the story, to go with these amazing illustrations that that um, Ron Husband, who's a legend in his own right, um, has done for the book. So it was interesting. Um, with Meacham, one of the things that I noticed was, you know, he uh, was born into slavery, right, in the late 1700s. And um, and then he went on, he, he really had an impact um, in the education area, but also as a minister. Yes, um, he... Um was born in 1789 in Virginia and then um, uh, was really an unusual man. Um, he um, was very interested in, in education um, and the Tallow Candle School that he started um, is one of, if not the um, first um, schools for both free freedmen at the time and, and um, enslaved people. Um, and he he was also very entrepreneurial, so he was known as someone who um, would actually purchase um, enslaved people and have them and train them um, in his um, I think he was a carpenter and also um, um, had some other sort of businesses um, and then um, he he would then um, let them earn their freedom and go ahead and and um, and pay him back that way. So um, he was he was someone who really believed in education, um, and he actually died before the Civil War in 1854. Although his widow um, Mary um, was arrested um, for hiding runaway slaves, and um, in 2001, the Mary Meacham Freedom Crossing became the first site in Missouri to be recognized as part of the National Park Service's National Underground Railroad Network to Freedom. So although he's really an obscure figure today, um, at the time he was really quite influential both in his ideas and then also in in what he did and his actions. Yeah, and it was uh, it was amazing when you think about that. Um, the, well, what struck me, among other things, was, you know, he first purchased his own freedom, then he purchased his father's, then his wife's. So it was all sort of part of part of a um, forward motion thing, which is um, exemplified in a way in what he did with the school. So the idea of, all right, if um, the Tallow Candle School is not going to work because people couldn't come there, then he was just going to take a school someplace where um, he could run a school. So talk to me about the Steamboat School. Yeah, so I did go to the um, Historical Society in St. Louis in, in the course of uh, researching this book and really wanted to find um, something that was more substance, substantive about someone who had actually gone there. Um, and according to sort of all the information I could find, one of his students was James Milton Turner, who became a prominent um, black educator in St. Louis. Um, and so I named the boy in the story James, but it was very clear to me after doing research that I couldn't find enough um, his verifiable historical information to actually tell the story as nonfiction. But um, in 1847, when, um, when the law changed to forbid the kind of school that, that uh, Reverend Meachin was holding, um, he he had this very 
ingenious solution of moving the school to um, to the um, to the river because he was um, that was federal property. So um, um, that's sort of why um, it turned out that that we did um, uh, tell it as as historical fiction. And do you know where Ron has been got? Uh, first heard of the story himself? No, I, um, he, um, I have not actually had a chance to meet Ron, but um, um, there might, I think there might, he had a colleague who um, um, had heard, um, had heard about uh, John Barry Meacham and um, had wanted to do, um, to do something more on him. And, so the project came to Hyperion is, of course, Hyperion Disney. And so um, I already had a couple of books with them. And so they were looking um, for a way to make it, um, to make it come, yes. to become a real book, I guess. <laughs> so how did you research this? It must have been difficult to research. It sounds like it. Um, it, it was. It was. And it was a little disappointing to go and not be able to find really what um, I wanted. Um, there was a scholar, there, there is a photo of him, an illustration, I should say, from the State Historical Society of Missouri. Um, and um, I also was able to find um, something that he had written, um, which was um, an address to all the colored citizens of the United States that John Barry Meacham had had actually written at the time. Um, but there is a Wikipedia um, entry on him and a couple of um, scholars have, who have studied him. Um, but really, you know, when you're writing nonfiction, and I do write nonfiction as, as well as fiction, um, you really need to have, um, have more, more evidence. So we really did. We included everything that we could in the note, but... Then the story itself and the characters are, and all the the dialogue is is made up. Oh, um, did you find out anything about the Steamboat School itself? I mean, do, do you know? No, if I was, they, not, able, yeah. I was <laughs> not able to find um, anything more than sort of um, what was sort of passed down. Um, he he did talk a little bit in this address which was um, part of a conference, I believe. Um, and um, he did talk about his, his background there. So he, this was a pamphlet, I believe, that he had written. And he does, he does talk about um, his, his background there, um, about being a carpenter and a cooper and purchasing his, his wife and when he started to preach. Um, but very, actually very little is known. So um, it's very important to me when I do talk to students in schools to be really clear when we're talking about historical fiction as opposed to nonfiction. Um, and although I did want to verify that um, some of the facts in here, I was, I was not able to. <laughs> So um, I was going to ask you about some of that, because obviously when you come into a book and you've written on many, many topics, um, including the Titanic, one of my favorites from a long time ago was um, 
was Clara and the um, Sweet Freedom Quilt. And you've also written um, on many different uh, topic areas. So tell me, when you look at a book, um, do you come into it knowing which, whether it's going to head into historical fiction or be historical, or does that come later in your research? Um, it, um, I think it really depends on the genre. So I do, for instance, a book like Titanic or my most recent nonfiction book for older readers, um, which is called Dive, which is about um, submarines in World War II. It was clearly proposed as a longer work of nonfiction. Um, I think the the more difficult areas are um, areas um, in picture books where um, you have a very sh- compressed dramatic arc. So um, recently, last year, I published um, a book called Beatrix Potter and the Unfortunate Tale of a right. Barbed Guinea Pig. <laughs> and um, it is really, it is based on um, actual entries in Beatrix Potter's journal. Um, but like Steamboat School, um, in order to make it appealing to a young audience, it is fictionalized and does have an author's note that explains the difference between fiction and nonfiction. And many times I will, to answer your question, I will start out hoping to make a nonfiction book and uh, an editor will invariably say, you know, it's, there's just not enough story there. <laughs> and do you have, do you find that, is it um, more of your things uh, that go to a younger audience? Would it be more likely for that to be historical fiction? Um. To some degree, I do have um, a picture book called Annie and Helen, which is about Annie Sullivan and Helen Keller. And I was, um, it's based on Annie Sullivan's letters about when she first began teaching um, Helen Keller. Um, And I was very careful there um, to not include any additional dialogue so that, and to really, um, any quotes that are there were from her letters. Um, But I would say, I don't know, more than half the time, at least, um, my picture books become historical fiction. Even a book um, called Sky Boys, um, How They Built the Empire State the Building, Empire State is Building, based yeah. on you know, very detailed research into the Empire State Building, and I use it a lot to talk about informational sources, but the characters are, are imagined. And um, I think, especially nowadays, um, both as students go from elementary to middle and high school, but also just in in our age of internet and confusing um, sources of information. Mm-hmm. I, I always am at author visits in schools, no matter what level, really um, talk about, um, for instance, um, where did I, where could I have found this information? And it's not just Google, it's not just a book but really have them think about, say, for the Empire State Building, to get the details of how many, you know, how many workers and how much steel was used, um, to think about where, in fact, um, the source of that had to be. And, it, and, it, and I will eventually get students to, 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 rem- to think and think deeper, I guess, and say, oh, it had to come from a source at the time, either the blueprints or the construction company, which is, in fact, where it came from. So I think that's very important, and I know teachers do that all the time in schools, but when I'm in a school for only a day, it's one of the things that I focus on. 
Do you find that kids at different ages um, are are attracted to history? So when you walk into a classroom of a younger group of kids versus middle school or whatever, um, what's the tenor there? Um, well, I always start out in a big group of asking them, like, what book has has kept them up most recently at night, and and it's very very rare that it'll be historical fiction or nonfiction, and you know, people tend kids I think tend to read as adults do for pleasure. A lot of middle schoolers read a lot of dystopian and fantasy, but I also um, will have sort of history nuts at all levels. <laughs> And it's it's always fun to have. Um, I know that there are students there who who remember more about Titanic than than I now can remember myself. <laughs> and I'm writing my third book on World War II, and and there are definitely and they sometimes they do tend to be boys, but not always. But um, who who know things that I don't know? You know those kids that that have that curiosity to dive really deeply into, into a topic, whether it's baseball or dinosaurs or World War II or Titanic. Have any of your books come out of questions kids have asked about a topic? Um, actually, the Titanic book did. Um, um, it came out in 2012 for the 100th anniversary, but um, in going to schools, um, you know, that's, a topic that kids that's endlessly fascinating, I think, to both adults and children. And and I would have kids say, "Are you ever going to write a book about the Titanic?" The other question I get a lot, which I is not a topic that I will write about, though, is I get lots of kids that say, "Will you write about 9/11?" Wow, huh? It's interesting. And I think that's because that is in recent enough history, although most many of the kids that I talked to, you know, weren't born then. Mm. Um, but still, it, it, and it has that feeling. Um, I have written one picture book about World War I, but World War II seems to be a topic also of, of great interest from elementary, elementary through middle school, I think. Now, one of the things I had read um, is that you have said that part of the challenge is uh, – as educators, parents, and librarians, is to bring history to kids in a way that shows them that it's exciting. So what do you think about when you write? Um, Well, many of my topics, whether it's historical fiction or nonfiction, I'm always, I think, motivated by this feeling like, wow, how come I didn't know this uh, myself? And so one of the books I love to talk about in to um, students in schools um, is The Great Trouble, which is about the 1854 cholera epidemic, and which I wrote after reading Stephen Johnson's The Ghost Map. Um, And it's about uh, Dr. John Snow, who is the founder of epidemiology and public health. And I just never get tired of sort of uh, unraveling that story and having students look at an actual death certificate and at color bacteria and thinking about sort of um, what had to go into the, the mystery of um, trying to figure out the, the cause of a disease when you didn't have a microscope powerful enough to actually see the bacteria. So a lot of what I do is when I'm in schools is, is very visual. Um, it's looking at photographs. 
um, and trying to get um, historical context. So I, I do the principles of historical thinking, which is what is the source, what is the context, can you corroborate your information, and really close reading is the other thing to really look closely at, at what's being, what, where the document or the photograph, how, or the illustration, when it was created, who created, and what was their purpose. Do you travel a lot as part of your research? Um, I travel as part of my research when I can. I was able to go to London. Um, right now, um, I'm working on a book on D-Day, and I probably um, I will travel to the Cornelius Ryan Collection in Ohio when I'm there for a school visit. I probably won't get to Normandy, and it's a very strange thing, but um, I actually find it more important even to travel when I'm writing historical fiction because I have to sort of let my characters loose, say, in London, and they have to walk from one place to another. Um, so for um, my book that came out last year, Bandit's Tale, which is set in New York City, um, I dragged my, my daughter with me on a research trip um, to go to different parts in the story um, whereas in nonfiction, really what you're looking for, say for my D-Day book, are memoirs or recollections or first-person accounts that were as close to the time period as possible. Um, because after 50 or 60 years, um, memories fade and they, they, things become stories, not they're not as vivid, and um, I had the chance to, to hear Rick Atkinson, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his World War II books, and he said very much the same thing, like the closer that you can get to the event with a first-person account, the better. So that's sort of the way I, I operate. It's interesting. So, um, so how... How do you go about your process? I was going to ask you about your style, but also when you research, I mean, where do you even start when uh, something comes along and, and what's the typical length of the process? Is there similarity between books? Um, that's a good question. Mm. Well, I guess it depends whether it's a long book or a short book. Um, I, I, I used to have a full-time job up until three years ago. I was in um, fundraising and grant writing in higher education. And so um, there I would, I would spend a lot of my weekends. So I tend not to think of um, projects in terms of months or weeks, but more in terms of, like, hours. Um, so, for instance, dive. And what I will do, which was nonfiction about the war in the Pacific after World War II, after Pearl Harbor, um, and stories of submarines. I basically get as many books as I can, start reading about it and researching, and then I really try to select. Um, there were many submarines. You know, you, it's kind of, sort of like Titanic. You, I could have written a whole other Titanic book with different people. Hmm. And what I like to do is choose um, people who live through an event whose account um, is vivid enough to give especially young readers um, I think a sense of what it was like to be there, and that's um, important to me. So um, I think as adults we can read history, um, and and we have a maybe a higher tolerance for having lots of people's names that might be quoted with just one sentence. Say 
in the Battle of D-Day. But what I'm looking for when I'm sort of doing my initial pass is to try to find people whose personalities come through um, to become, uh, in some ways, characters in the book. So someone um, that... that- I was going to say, so someone that kids can latch on to, it sounds like. Right. And so every book, especially a a longer nonfiction book, then has, um, or with Steamboat School, even a picture book, um, you know, it it has that challenge of whether your sources, again, going back to sources, whether your sources can, um, are sufficient for a work of nonfiction. Um, and I, I've taught um, a nonfiction workshop at Highlights Foundation the last couple of years, and that was really a, a lot of what the participants who were aspiring writers, or in some cases published writers, uh, the challenge of writing nonfiction is whether you whether you have enough um, sources to create a sort of a page-turning narrative. <laughs> now. Um... So the next book will be on D-Day. Are there other topics um, that you're eyeing that you, I didn't know if you'd want to talk about some of that? Well, I have two spring picture books that are totally um, different. One is called um, A Letter to My Teacher, illustrated by Nancy Carpenter, which is um, contemporary, just about the relationship between a second grader and her teacher. And the other one is called Independence Cake. And it's um, a very, again, it's historical fiction and um, it's very um, clearly, um, it's about Amelia Simmons, but um, it's called a revolu- revolutionary confection um, based on the life yeah. of Amelia Simmons, whose true history is unfortunately unknown. So again, there I wanted to play really with the fact that we don't know much about her um, and to really introduce that idea um, that, w- that, I'm, that I am making up story here. <laughs> so, well, we'll um, hope that people look for those books. So, and the D-Day title book is what? Um, it's called D-Day, The Invasion That Changed History, and that should be out in fall 2018. Great. Um, well, Deborah, thank you for talking to me. Deborah Hopkinson is a uh, the author of more than 40 books for children. She's um, won many awards for her books. And um, her newest book is called The Steamboat School. It's published by Hyperion. And um, the illustrator for the book is Ron Husband. Deborah, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks again, Susan. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.